Circle, your cultural affairs radio program, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Many thanks to all who pledged last week, and remember, you can always, always continue to donate to the station online at kpfa.org. On tonight's show, we'll be addressing financial inequality here in the USA. On tonight's show, we'll discuss how do we understand the widening wealth gap, what is fueling its runaway increase, student debt and the cost of higher education as a barrier to building wealth, also medical costs, now a leading cause of personal bankruptcy and loss of savings, and finally, a blessedly... A review of things being done to address financial inequality, especially in the Bay Area. You won't want to miss a minute of Full Circle tonight. I'm your host, Darlene Pagano. Stay with us. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to Full Circle. I have with me Debbie Notkin and J.P. Masser, local activists and members of Strike Debt Bay Area, here to talk broadly about financial inequality. Right off, tell us a bit about Strike Debt, and let's start with Debbie. Strike Debt is an offshoot of Occupy Wall Street and also Occupy Oakland. Our slogan is, you are not alone. We fight unjust debt. One of the projects of Strike Debt in New York was the Rolling Jubilee, which crowdfunded money to buy medical debt from debt collectors and then forgive it to individuals who just got letters saying, you don't owe any more money. Another offshoot of Strike Debt is the Debt Collective, which works with student debt and student debt strikers. And finally, in Strike Debt Bay Area, we do a lot of different things, which we're going to talk about on this program. Coincidentally, uh, some time ago, Strike Debt Bay Area created a set of radio segments for KPFA on many aspects of debt, which you can find on our website. And we'll treat you to the theme music from those shows when we take a music break. But for now, everyone is talking about inequality these days. And what exactly is it, the financial version? Why do we seem to care so much about it and not just concentrate on eradicating poverty? I live in North Oakland. I came up here to KPFA studio on the bus. In that short ride, I passed two or three small groups of tents occupied by homeless people. Everyone who lives in the Berkeley and Oakland flats is getting used to seeing homeless encampments. Everybody who rides the bus, like me, is used to seeing homeless people struggle onto the bus with loaded carts. That's poverty. What makes it inequality as well as poverty, is that homeless people are living side by side with people who have enough money to live in good, comfortable homes, drive nice cars, pass the tents and encampments. What makes it extreme inequality is the people we don't see, living in gated mansions, taking private jets to their yachts. Just as there are more homeless people every day, 
There are also more obscenely rich people in this country than there have ever been. That's inequality. Let's be clear. Let's be clear. We're here to talk about financial inequality and its consequences. There are many other kinds of inequality, and they really matter, but that's for another show. So how do we, the public, think about financial inequality? When you take polls and ask people what they think about inequality, most of us don't like it. Most of us don't believe that anyone should have a lot more money than they need when other people are starving, even though studies also show that most of us believe that there should be a fairly wide range of incomes and wealth. Rather than believing that everybody should have the same amount, most people think it should be possible to become pretty rich. But few people think that the difference should be as extreme as it is. Here's a way to think about the difference between poverty and inequality. If we lived in a society where pretty much everyone was poor, that society would be equal, even if no one wanted to live there. If we lived in a society where pretty much everyone was doing pretty well, but almost no one was really rich, that would also be a very equal society. It sounds good to me, but as JP just said, it's not what most people in the U.S. say they want, and it might not be realistic. Or we could live in a society where pretty much everyone was able to at least get by, but some people could become multimillionaires. Then there would still be inequality, but less poverty. That's what shows up in polls and studies as many people's first choice. The concept of basic income, which would give everyone a livable amount of money every year and leave room for people to make more if they wanted to, is based on that vision. Or you can have the society we live in now, where a growing number of people have less than nothing, while others have literally tens of billions of dollars. And this unequal society, astoundingly, is continuing to get more and more unequal. As more and more people's wealth decreases, more and more people's debts increase, and the super-rich accumulate more and more. You can think about inequality in terms of income, how much a person makes, or in wealth, how much a person has other than their income, such as a house or a savings account. And you can also measure income inequality for employed people based on after-tax income or before-tax income. What's interesting is that no matter which measure you use, the inequality gap has been getting bigger in the United States for decades. So why does inequality matter? If, as you just said, might be possible, everyone had enough to eat and a place to live, maybe because we had uh, a basic income that you mentioned, maybe we would, uh, would we even need to talk about inequality? We started to talk about that before, but let's take it a little further. If you survey people and ask them how much more they think a CEO should make in comparison to the average worker in the CEO's company, people say around six or seven to one. So they think that the CEO of their company should make less than 10 times what they make, more or less. And if you ask them what they think the gap is, it gets a little bit bigger. They think it's about 12 to one. But in reality, the CEO makes somewhere between 100 and 700 times more than the employee. Or if you go and ask people what share of all our country's wealth poorer people should have compared to what richer people should have, again, you'll get an answer that's laughably far from the real numbers. Most people think that the bottom half should have about a quarter for every dollar there is. 25 cents. But the bottom half have much, much less than that. 
In fact, the bottom 90% of everyone, almost the entire population, has less than a quarter for every dollar there is, while just the top 1% in the U.S. have about 40 cents on the dollar. This kind of wealth inequality is unprecedented in U.S. history. People are pretty consistent about what they think the right level of inequality should be. Most folks in the U.S. don't think there should be huge gaps, the huge gaps that we have now. Nor do they think everyone should make pretty much the same and have about the same amount of wealth. So what's making the inequality grow? The United States has always been an unequal society. We have a very weird myth in this country that almost no place else in the world has, which is that you should vote for and support things that are good for rich people because someday you're going to be rich. There's very little truth in that way of thinking. Most of the wealthiest people are wealthy because their parents were, but it, that way of thinking has persisted for a couple hundred years. Inequality starting a... St Inequality started getting a great deal worse in the 1980s. <coughs> As you might guess, economists don't agree about the reasons. We could be here for hours delving into all the possibilities. But here are two of the things we think have had a substantial effect. Before the 1980s, most corporations put their profits into three major buckets. They did pay their owners, which we also call shareholders, and CEOs and other company management are almost always major shareholders. Second, they would also pay their employees more as their company did better. Third, they would expand and improve their equipment. Most corporations aren't interested in making cereal or selling car parts or whatever they claim to do anymore. They're just interested in how they can manipulate their money out of your pocket and into their shareholders' pockets. Nowadays, they've worked it out so the overwhelming majority of corporate profits go into people's pockets, and there's almost none left for raises or improvements. Entire professions have been created where the people do nothing but make money by manipulating corporate profits for short-term gain. Raising wages is very low on their priority list. Often, if they do expand or make improvements, they do it on borrowed money instead of their profits, which makes bankers richer. So if you're John, the CEO of a company, you own lots of shares in your corporation. You want your corporation to make money now, right now, because a lot of that money it makes will go directly into your pocket. But if you're Juan, the employee, they may keep telling you that if your company makes money, it'll be good for you. But, you know, you almost certainly notice that no matter how much the corporation makes, your wages and working conditions have stayed about the same. Forty years and back, when workers were able to produce more, they got paid more. Raises. Since then, though, workers' wages haven't gone up more than a smidgen on average after inflation. And that's true even though technology has improved and almost all workers are doing more and more in less and less time. Spending less time and being more productive is the essence of creating wealth. But that's wealth that is now flowing directly into the guarded compounds of the super-rich and away from the rest of us. Here's another reason. Protections for workers are disappearing. Fifty years ago, a much higher percentage of workers were members of unions than now. Unionized workers make significantly more than non-union workers. But unions have been forced out of many industries, and lots of us are making less than we might. The bosses say we're not the kind of people who need unions, or they treat us so well we don't need unions. 
BS like that. Did you know we wouldn't have a five-day work week if it wasn't for unions? But look out. The five-day work week is rapidly disappearing. You have to be online at home or you have just-in-time scheduling and no guaranteed hours because no union. As part of the same process as the disappearance of unions, more and more people are forced to take jobs in the gig economy. They're no longer even employees, not guaranteed an hourly rate, 40-hour week, work week, let alone any benefits. If you drive for Uber or Lyft, you don't get vacations or sick leave. Your employer doesn't have to pay part of your health insurance costs. No one's protecting you. Meanwhile, more and more actual jobs are minimum or near minimum wage uh, jobs. Higher paying factory jobs have been replaced by more low paying service jobs, along with a few higher paying tech jobs, which require lots of training. Yeah, it's true that the Fight for 15 minimum wage movement has been successful in a few places. San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley minimum wages have been and are going up substantially. But the, the, the bottom line is the federal minimum wage and most state minimum wages are, again, taking inflation into account, at one of the lowest points in our history. Sure, some people are getting good-paying jobs with good benefits, but more and more people are finding themselves taking jobs that pay less, putting themselves in dire financial straits, or having to work two or three low-wage jobs just to pay the rent and feed the kids. More and more people who used to be middle class are working MIC jobs for MIC minimum wages. Then you have some smaller number of people moving up, getting upper middle class salaries. And finally, there's the one in a hundred who are getting even more obscenely rich from their investments and shenanigans. That's inequality in a nutshell. Whoa. Okay. (laughs) As we go on, let's take just one moment. I want to play that... um, um, uh, what, what did we call it? The music. Strike Debt theme song. The theme song from Strike Debt. Here we go. When there's so many of us can't afford a home When there's so many of us who can't get a job Man, I don't need your crumbs, I would rather starve Strike that, You are not alone The American dream, it wasn't ours to own The American dream, it has requirements Your very blood, no lie, check the fine print Strike that, What's this place we live in? Where the men, women, and children are the logs to the fuel The flames from the beginning, the cogs in the machine We rage against the scene, entrapped in the routine That was Strike Debt by Bay Area artist Ryan Nicole. So far, you all haven't said anything specifically about people of color here. Everywhere we look, we do find that social problems disproportionately affect black and brown people. It seems to me that would apply to financial inequality just as well. How does it cut across racial and ethnic lines? It does. It's undeniably true. Racial and ethnic inequalities as old as our belief in race. So let's look at some scenarios. Suppose you're a white person whose family has been in this country since before the Civil War. You might have inherited land, maybe with a home on it that's been appreciating all that time. Or your grandparents might have sold it and made some money on it that's been invested for many decades. In contrast, if you're a black person, your family was probably enslaved. Um when that white person's family was buying land. Even after the Civil War, white society made it very, very difficult for a black family to accumulate wealth. 
So that's inequality rooted from generations before you were even born. Or you might be a person of color whose grandfather fought in World War II. White veterans of that war came home to the GI Bill, which allowed returning soldiers to buy homes and get educations. Somehow, are we surprised? The bill got tweaked and implemented so it just didn't work for the vast majority of black veterans. That gave white veterans, including the ones in my own family, a huge advantage. If the GI Bill had been implemented equally, wealth could have been accumulating in your family for nearly 70 years and might now have been passed to you. Whoever you are, if anybody in your family owns a house, the value of that house was probably affected by redlining, the process of refusing to let people of color buy homes in white neighborhoods. So the white neighborhoods became whiter and thus more theoretically economically desirable, and the houses increased more in value, and other neighborhoods became poorer, in part because of the largely greater black unemployment rate compared to the white unemployment rate, and the wage difference between people of color and white people doing comparable work. Please understand that we're talking on average here. There's lots of people who didn't inherit a dime from their parents, even if their ancestors came over on the Mayflower. And ill fortune can make anyone unemployed. But the fact that these things are true of so much a higher percentage of people of color than of white people produces dramatic effects on average. In fact, these and similar effects are so dramatic that the average black family in this country has only about a tenth of the wealth that the average white family does. And black wealth is actually going down now, while white wealth is staying the same or going up, even though most of the increases in going into everyday white people's pockets, it's going into the rich. Things got a little better for people of color between the beginning of the war on poverty in the 1960s and the Great Recession of 2008. Then, boom, the recession decimated minority families' assets. People of color were far more likely than white people to be forced out of their homes by foreclosure. Why? Because they started out with less wealth. So if they did manage to own a home, that home probably represented a much larger fraction of their wealth than the home of a white person. So they were more devastated financially when they lost it. From 2010 to the present, rich people who lost money in the stock market in the 2008 crash have gotten that money back and a lot more. People who were able to keep their house through the Great Recession have seen its value go way, way up. But the near poor, often people of color, many of them deceived by fast-talking mortgage brokers into buying property they couldn't afford, lost it all. And some even ended up homeless. One of my favorite quotes from Barbara Major is the one she gives. There's not a problem in this country that can't be made a little worse by adding some color to it. So uh, right in front of us now today um, is that congressional tax plan. What's your perspective on that and other actions of the Trump administration through this lens of financial inequality? The Trump administration and the Republicans love inequality. They're doing everything they can to reinforce and increase it. The truly horrible tax scam bill you just referred to is one whopping manifestation of that. Nothing could be worse for poor people or better for inequality if you like inequality. Yeah, it isn't the law yet, but it's terrifyingly close. And uh, we can't really get into specifics because it changes daily. 
Um, but even before this monstrosity was on the table, we saw endless efforts by the Trump administration to take away services and subsidies which people use for health care, for education, for housing, for daily living. All analysts, including Republican sympathetic analysts, believe that this tax bill will increase the total U.S. debt by more than a trillion and a half dollars. Remember when Republicans hated deficits and the national debt? When they blamed red ink on Democrats and promised to get rid of it? Well, they had one motive then and they have one motive now. They want to get rid of everything that moves money to anyone who isn't rich. They can do this by radically shrinking government expenditures or by increasing the total U.S. debt. So interest payments on that debt will continue to flow to the wealthy. In their famous phrase, they want to make government so small that you can drown it in a bathtub. And what that means is that they're building excuses and reasons to get rid of programs which reduce inequality. First, Medicaid, the program that provides health care to the poorest Americans. Then Medicare, the program that provides health care to the oldest Americans and people with disabilities, and that working people pay for as part of every paycheck. And ultimately, Social Security, the program that provides income to the oldest Americans and people with disabilities and orphan children, which working people pay a lot for as part of every paycheck. And then they'll look at us and say, well, we would have kept those programs, but we just can't afford it anymore. While in private, they're laughing all the way to their offshore tax haven banks. Before Trump was elected, most politicians had to at least pretend that they cared about the middle class, if not the poor. Now they're completely emboldened. This tax legislation will take many protections away from working people and put even more money into the hands of the rich than they have now. And, we'll say it one more time, they already have proportionally more money at this time than at any other time in our country's history. As one pundit put it, the tax bill invests heavily in the wealthy and their children. It's disgusting. Here are a few examples if they don't change tomorrow. Corporations, which already have a lot of ways to avoid paying any tax at all, will have lower tax rates. And they'll be able to bring back billions of dollars they stashed overseas to avoid taxes without paying much, if any, tax on it, just as they'd hoped. The wealthiest individuals will see the amount they have to pay go down big time, while some in the middle will suffer by paying more. Lots of taxes deductions that ordinary people use are being reduced or eliminated. But some tax deductions aren't gone. You'll still be able to deduct expenses for your private jet and your yacht. No, seriously, we aren't kidding. <laughs> Did we say Republicans don't have to pretend that they care about the middle class anymore? Just as studies show that people don't like extreme inequality, polls show that people hate this tax bill. If we lived in a democracy where the laws reflected the will of the people, the tax scam would never have made it to a vote. But here we are, likely to see it made into law before the end of this year. When you pay your taxes in 2019 and beyond, remember that anything extra you're paying is like writing a check to a very rich person. You're not paying for infrastructure or nation healthcare. Yet another reminder, as if we needed it, as the importance of our collective actions leading up to the 2018 election. Folks, we're only partway through the topics we will touch on tonight with our guests from Strike Debt, Deb Notkin and J.P. Mazur. So let's take a breath, a breath and appreciate the occasional personal wins we do experience. 
When musician D1 signed a record deal two years ago, he decided to use a chunk of his money to completely finish paying his Sally Mae student loans back. And then he wrote this song. For those who doubted me, yeah, this is payback. And I've been on my grizzly, yeah, since way back. No, sir, and I don't drive a Maybach. But guess what I did? I finished paying She called me at least twice a day, she want her money badly Calling me from different numbers, ooh, she thinks she's slick But I got them all memorized, I hit it no quick Needed tuition, needed room and board Had to pay for books, so I took out loans to feed the boy Graduated, wasn't making quite enough to pay him back Went in default, missed my credit up, check my Equifax, huh I ain't proud of that, I'm more proud of that, I ain't drowning that I got two jobs, really got on my grind, no time to whine I can't ride the pine in the game right now, my time to shine Started paying them loans back one at a time Got them down, 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 down Till I paid them all off, peace sign For those who doubted me, yeah, this is payback And I've been on my grizzly, yeah, since way back No, sir, and I don't drive a Maybach But guess what I did? I finished paying Just had a long day. Just got off of work, they got me drove. My boss kept me late. Walk inside the kitchen, grab a dish, and then I fix a plate. You are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA. You just heard Sally Mayback by D1. Do go to our website, kpfaapprentice.org. That's kpfaapprentice, one word, dot org, for links to the music you hear tonight as well as to a recording of this show. So, following D1, let's talk about student debt. I've heard that student debt is up to one and a half trillion dollars. And a lot of our listeners are younger. Some of them are starting college, some are in college, and some are just out. And many of them are getting into the student debt cycle already. So how does student debt fit into all this talk of financial inequality? Well, financial inequality is a huge factor in student debt for a very simple reason. If your parents have the money to put you through college with little or no student debt, and they want to do that, you get out free and clear. But if you have to pay for your own college, which is more and more common as the wealth gap increases, then you face serious problems, which we're about to talk about. But first, let's address the tired meme college students hear all the time, mostly from older people who say, I was able to work my way through college without debt. Why can't you? The answer is that when your grandmother went to college, tuition was relatively a lot less expensive, and the minimum wage was relatively higher. So the money she made waiting on tables or pumping gas went a lot further toward fees and expenses. And it wasn't just private colleges which were less expensive. There were lots of state colleges and universities which were very low cost. 
California's public universities used to almost be free. Here's another way to look at this. In the last 40 years, average tuition has gone up so much, it now costs about 10 times as much as it did in the 1970s, a thousand percent increase. That means it had to go up almost 20% each year, every year. When did average wages go up 20% in a year? Never, that's when. They've never even come close. Finally, if your grandmother did end up coming out of college with some debt, she could generally pay it off in a few years of pinching pennies. When old white senators talk about how people waste their money on avocado toast or on booze, women, and movies, what do they mean? If they're thinking at all, which is dubious, they're thinking about what college costs were like when they were young and their daddies were rich and gas was 25 cents a gallon. Today, people are graduating with multiple tens of thousands of dollars in debt. They'll be paying it off for decades. Many of them will devote a substantial portion of their income to student debt up to and even after they retire. 45 years of paying off a debt you incurred in four to eight years. College graduates coming out of school today are in much worse financial shape than they used to be, even if they're earning good salaries. Sure, the salaries they earn might seem reasonable, but when a substantial fraction of that salary is going to pay off student debt for a long time instead of saving for a house, and when they're also paying much higher rents than people used to, it's easy to see how wealth inequality builds, how someone with a heavy student debt has lousy prospects for a healthy financial future. And in another fairly recent complication, did you know that student debt can't be reduced or forgiven in bankruptcy? It's true. Congress made it so in the 1990s. If you stop paying your student loan payments because you got laid off and never got a job that paid so well, Uncle Sam is never going to forget. The government is ultimately going to end up garnishing your Social Security checks to pay it back. There are very few ways of erasing student debt. A bankruptcy... A bankruptcy judge really can't do it, and the current administration is working overtime on getting rid of the few ways that might have existed before. But corporations, they can get what they owe reduced or eliminating, eliminated by pleading bankruptcy, unlike student debtors. In fact, a corporation can do something truly horrible, like the outfit which poisoned the water supply in West Virginia. When they got sued, they turned around and filed bankruptcy. They never had to make it right for the people they had made ill or killed, and no one went to jail for it either. Let's think about the elected by a minority poor excuse for a human being now occupying the White House. He claims to be a master of the art of the deal, but he's really a master of the art of bankruptcy. He's amazingly skilled at enriching himself at the expense of his workers, his contractors, his partners, and the people he bought things from by having his corporation pay him tons of money and then having the corporation declare bankruptcy so all the money stays in his bank account. It would seem fair that a student debtor would have access to the same system that corporations and the Donald have for dealing with financial misfortune. But no, business people get loopholes Rich people get big loopholes, and students get to eat ramen for the rest of their lives. And it gets worse. As a student, you might have gotten yourself stuck in a for-profit college scam. You might have paid as much or more as you would have to go to a good college, but ended up with no marketable skills. These for-profit schools, which barely existed decades ago, have proliferated. 
They convince or even defraud their students into taking out as much money as possible in the form of government loans. That money goes straight into their corporate pockets. Then you graduate with not only a mountain of debt, but also little prospect of the job you thought you were training for. One of the worst for-profit colleges, Corinthian, did end up going bankrupt. Their owners just walked away. Their students got no breaks at all. Working with Strike Debt's partners in the debt collective, I made a lot of calls to former Corinthian students who were facing their debt in the wake of Corinthian's bankruptcy. Their stories broke my heart. 30000 40000 50000 in debt for services which were supposed to be provided by a now non-existent entity which had promised them not just prospects, but jobs. Some of the people I talked to had been so desperate that they kept going back to Corinthian for more years of education, even though the first one or two times they had tried hadn't worked. Desperate people can't make good choices. And indebtedness right out of school isn't just bad for individuals. It's bad for society. As a, as a new graduate, you might have to decide to become a corporate drone instead of a teacher so you can earn enough to pay your student loan payment and the rent. You might go into banking instead of going to graduate school to pursue cancer research, even if you think banking is boring or illegitimate. Ultimately, you face a very different world than your grandparents faced. And financially, it's not for the better. As more and more people figure out what it looks like when people graduate from college in, this, in these days, they think differently about the decision to go to college at all. Lots of young people are beginning to realize that the debt burden they'll face when they get out of school um, is a good enough reason to question the value of the education they'll receive in return. A technological society can't afford to have an uneducated workforce, and yet that's where we could be headed. Don't, don't tell me. Let me guess. The Trump administration is making all this worse. <laughs> good guess. Betsy DeVos, Trump's secretary of education, is the single richest member of Trump's very rich cabinet. She's busy taking away as many rights, subsidies, and supports for students as she can find. Even when Obama's education department cracked down and forced a few of these fraudulent for-profit diploma mills to close, the Obama administration never got around to forgiving the debt their students incurred. The, the, anyway. While the Obama administration promised some relief to some student victims, they never managed to deliver it at all before the apocalypse, which was January 20th, 2017. Guess what? DeVos is doing her best to renege on those unkept promises. In fact, uh, just yesterday, California and other states felt it necessary to sue DeVos and the Department of Education to force them to make good on forgiveness for 80,000 students. I understand that in a lot of other countries, they do not have this problem. And so is that true? And how do you think that affects people's lives here? Almost no other developed or rich country has anything like our problem with student debt. In Germany, college is 100% free, and you don't even have to be a German citizen to qualify. All you have to do is be accepted into the college and be able to take classes in German. If you think about it, a year of intensive German language study in a language school and the travel costs for four years of going back and forth to Germany would leave you in a lot less debt than going to four years of school in the United States. Plus, when you're looking for jobs, you'd be bilingual. 
I'm sure neither the German nor any other system is perfect. But, you know, comparing the U.S. just through an inequality lens on this basis, middle class and lower class students, and even more so minority middle class and lower class students, now face a lifetime of debt for an education that may never really pay for itself. Despite being heralded as a land of opportunity, the U.S. now has one of the lowest rates of people who are able to do better financially than their parents. That takes us back to the American dream, and in fact, to most parents' dreams for their children. Education has always been promoted as a path out of poverty, but now it may only be a path in deeper. That's not true in a lot of other countries. Here, it's developing into a really serious problem. Healthcare is today's other hot topic. How does our healthcare system in the state that it's in and medical debt, um, the, de- the debts that, they, that it generates, how does that affect inequality as well? Well, the biggest health-related inequity in this country is not primarily financial. It's the huge gap in overall health and specifically in life expectancy experienced by people of color, low-wage earners, and their families. If you live in a poor neighborhood with less access to healthy food and all the stresses of being oppressed, your life expectancy is a full 10 years shorter than mine if I live in the nicer neighborhood next door. Remember we talked about red line neighborhoods and how they became poorer? In Oakland, the map of where there used to be redlining looks almost exactly like the map of lower life expectancy. Racism shortens lives. Having your life cut short is a pretty pernicious form of inequality. But even aside from the obvious horrors of dying too soon, there's a financial inequality angle. Money is being stolen from people who die earlier because they're poor. If you live 10 years less than you otherwise might have, you'll never receive much of the Social Security, Medicare, or pension benefits that you might otherwise have received. Say you get a thousand a month Social Security check. Then each year you don't live and spend or save that money results in $12,000 that the government doesn't write you a check for. That adds up to a whopping $120,000 over 10 years. And who benefits from this unspent money? It's not your heirs. It's the wealthier individuals who live longer. They get the money you forfeited and some of it gets passed down to their heirs. Another aspect of the generational wealth effect we talked about earlier in the show. Medical debt and inequality and the unfairness of our healthcare system is a long, complicated, tricky discussion. And it's made especially convoluted by the recent introduction of Obamacare, Supreme Court decisions affecting Obamacare, and the even more recent efforts to dismantle or cripple it. There are winners and losers. It's too much to talk about here in detail, but we'll touch on a few points related to debt. Most of us remember the time just a few years ago when people were incurring hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical debt, when insurance companies were daily denying care to cancer patients and pre-existing conditions meant death for those who couldn't pay. Every time you opened your email, you found a new GoFundMe for someone in your wider, wider social circle who would die if they didn't raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for medical treatments. 
Obamacare, for all of its limitations, made that a good deal better. And no one, except Republican elected officials, wants to go back to those good old days of insurance company terror. But financial inequality and healthcare indebtedness is still a major problem. If you don't have access to $500 for an emergency, like half of Americans, and your deductible, the amount you have to pay before your insurance covers you, is thousands of dollars, you're not going to go to the doctor when you need to. You're not going to get your kids' medical needs taken care of. You can't. If you're faced with a life-or-death choice and you're fortunate enough to have a job, you might be able to borrow the money you need if it isn't too much money. But you might have to do it through a payday lender where the rates are extortionate. So your financial problems are worse. In the short age of Obamacare, most reasonably affluent folk no longer have to worry about having their life savings wiped out by a medical disaster. But the less affluent can still get into serious, sometimes deadly trouble. See a doctor or pay the rent. Have an MRI and risk becoming homeless. Inequality you are the American healthcare system. Just like student debt, just like as with student debt, no other developed country on the planet has such an unequal system. Many have essentially free universal health care, giving people in those countries no worries about access to care or its cost. This makes it one less thing that's unequal in their society. Yeah, sure, the wealthy can still pay for special care pretty much anywhere you go if they want to, but a system where basic care is free while you can procure special care on occasion, if you have to, is a far cry from a system where you have to decide every time you or your kids have a problem whether you can afford to seek out the care you might need. Why do you think we here in the United States um, have it so backwards? So let's go back to racism. Underlying the push against universal health care, universal education, and the greater American pushback against subsidies or supports of any kind for poor people is the embedded white supremacy of much of our country. Quite likely, most white people would be nowhere near so opposed to these programs if it wasn't for the constant ongoing drumbeat of lies. You've heard them. If we provide decent health care, they will be getting something for nothing. We know very very well who's meant by they, especially since that claim is almost invariably made by white people. In countries with less virulently racist and polarized history, or even different racisms and polarizations, sanity seems to be easier to come by, and everybody gets at least somewhat more of what we all need and deserve. As you've noted, inequality is getting worse. We seem to be losing this battle. And it's pretty depressing. But what can people do locally, statewide, or even nationally to reverse this path? Please give us the story. Well, let's talk locally to start. As we said at the very beginning of the show, one of the starkest examples of inequality is right in front of us. The people sleeping on sidewalks and under freeway overpasses. They're often not half a block from high-rise luxury housing for sale, for rent, or under construction. Even though politicians claim they can't build an affordable apartment for less than $400,000 a unit, innovative solutions are cropping up. As with so many of the bright spots and solutions we're about to talk about, it's the people on the ground, here, the homeless people literally on the ground, who are leading the way. 
Berkeley's First They Came for the Homeless is an activist group of homeless people who've organized several homeless encampments <laughs> where people who live there enforce their own rules. In Oakland, a group called The Village did a similar thing earlier this year. These groups are showing us that sanctioned encampments quickly set up units designed for refugee situations, tiny homes, container crate residences, and modular villages are possible. If they were not just possible, but legal, they would be easy and inexpensive to build and maintain. Even many of the housed neighbors who are so upset by homeless people in their neighborhoods might come to appreciate these solutions, because at least it gets people housed. And a large portion of the Bay Area's homeless could be housed in such ways on existing open space at relatively little cost. A lot of human misery would be lifted. A lot of human excrement would be kept off our streets. And inequality would be reduced just a little. The city of Oakland, to its credit, has finally come to recognize this truth after years of chasing its homeless people from one site to another. It's beginning some pilot shelter projects using tiny homes and designated camping areas with services, including toilets and sinks. You can help by becoming an advocate, by making your representatives know you support these efforts, or by simply being a good neighbor to a homeless community, bringing them food, clothing, batteries, or even donating a solar panel. Talking to homeless neighbors might seem like a radical act, and it is a radical act. It's also a satisfying one. So another local thing. We've talked about the vultures we call payday lenders earlier. These outfits will lend you short-term money in an emergency at outrageous interest rates, often, often trapping you in an ever-deepening cycle of debt. If you're already paying off student loans or credit cards, of course, the payday loans make it even worse. There are more payday lenders in the United States than there are McDonald's and Starbucks combined. You can see them all over Oakland and a few places in Berkeley. But what almost no one knows is that there's a different kind of payday lender in Oakland, unique as far as we know in the entire country. It's called community check cashing, it's right in the Fruitvale Bart Plaza, and it's a nonprofit. Community check cashing doesn't charge the same outrageous fees and interest rates the other payday lenders charge. They provide counseling for people who want it. They help people get out of debt and manage their finances. In general, they charge a third to a half of what the for-profit thieves take. This one-store operation has been quietly changing lives in East Oakland for some seven years. The money they earn goes to pay local people and local services. It's not shipped off to the overseas coffers of a giant corporation that owns a payday lending outfit and never then recirculated in the local economy. If you're unfortunate enough to require the services of a payday lender in an emergency, you're far from the exception. But since you live in or near Oakland, you will be better off going to community check cashing now that you know about it. So even this one small outfit is a win for the community and a win for you. You know, if there were clones of this operation, or better yet, more serious programs for banks to loan money to people in emergencies at reasonable interest rates, the whole community would be better off financially. It's in almost everyone's interest to provide emergency funds to people a lot less expensively than we do now. It would be incredibly popular. Popula politicians should be all over it, but they aren't. And Strike Debt Bay Area's efforts to promote the idea haven't gone anywhere, at least yet. 
but it's something that could happen and end up helping a lot of people who are on the edge of a disaster. Another thing that's going on in Oakland and the East Bay is a movement for a public bank. This isn't just a dream. The Oakland City Council, with money from Berkeley, Richmond, and the County of Alameda, as well as from Oakland itself, has approved a feasibility study, and the contract was just signed yesterday. That study is being done by a progressive group led by local people of color and experts in public banking. If we can get a public bank started in the next couple of years, then Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond and maybe more will be able to put their money into our own bank, and it won't be held by Wall Street banks to be used for their profit making. The only public bank right now in the U.S. is in North Dakota. Its profits are an amazing $350,000 per day. If we had a public bank, that money could be used like it is in North Dakota for the general welfare, not for corporate welfare. Think of what money on that scale, $100 million plus a year, could fund and fix in the cities around us. Here's another local hopeful thing. Over the last several years, City College of San Francisco was attacked by for-profit colleges. They were salivating at the prospect of closing a low-cost public college, which would give them a shot at tens of thousands more paying, debt-incurring students, whom they could then leave high and dry. But hard work and determined activism not only saved City College, it got the the San Francisco Board of Supervisors to make the college completely tuition-free. We love it when our enemies create the results we're fighting for. So now let's talk briefly about California. We noted that uh, other developed countries pretty much all guarantee health care for everyone. The state of California, which has by itself enough money to be the sixth largest economy in the world, could do that too. If our politicians had the political will. A Medicare for all universal health care bill based on the system known as single payer was introduced into the legislature last year. It's still pending, except that the Democratic leadership in the assembly is doing its best to derail it. The California Nurses Association, the Democratic Socialists of America and thousands of activists across the state have been and still are pushing this bill and more generally pushing for health care as a right. Obamacare has been singularly successful in California, even if it still leaves out almost 7% of our residents, and it has other problems. But those who've benefited from it are not safe. It may only be a matter of time before Trump and the Republicans succeed in destroying it. And even if it does survive, those who haven't benefited from the Affordable Care Act deserve better. Universal health care legislation would do away with the financial anxiety and inequality of our current health care system. The majority of Californians want legislation like this, and the only way we're going to get it is to keep pushing for it, continuing to put relentless pressure on the legislature. That's something anyone can help with. Those are just a few of the things we could be doing to help address financial inequality. There are many others, from basic income to living wages, from a radically more progressive tax system to free public transportation. From breaking up the Wall Street banks and the mega giant corporations to promoting worker co-ops and companies where the bottom line isn't the only one under the only the one and only consideration. <laughs> one resource we use a lot um, is called runawayinequality.org. It's a project put together by a man known as Les Leopold. 
Les works with the remaining unions and others to organize and train thousands of people who can talk and teach about runaway inequality, the whys and the wherefores. You can visit his website for uh, lots of ideas on how to move forward. And that reminds me to remind you that we have links to what has been covered here tonight and the music we've heard, all on our Full Circle website. That is kpfaapprentice.org. This show and many others are archived there. You can listen back. That's also the website where you can find out more about the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, the group that's bringing you Full Circle. You uh, can apply online for this amazing opportunity to learn show production and broadcast skills in partnership with this station. There is uh, going to be an open uh, application period for the program in January. And all of that is at kpfaapprentice.org. kpfaapprentice, all one word, dot org. And we have a few more minutes to go. And so I'm just going to let JP and Debbie um, get in some last words. If we got too excited about any of this or angry about any of this, as we are angry about it, Strike Debt Bay Area is meeting tomorrow at 4 o'clock at the Omni, which is at 47th and Shattuck. And we'd love to have you join us. JP, anything um, else? Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to our little discourse, or maybe it's our uh, big rant on inequality. Um, I like right. the idea that there is hope. Um, <laughs> I'd like to uh, do, again, a big thank you to all of those who donated during our end-of-the-year fund drive. This is from both KPFA and from the Full Circle uh, production team. We truly appreciate your generous support. If you didn't get a chance to donate, don't worry. Uh, there's still time, there's always time, to make your voice heard by making a donation before the year ends via our website. The donation website would be kpfa.org. Your donations are tax deductible, and every penny gets us closer to reaching our fundraising goal. So from KPFA, we say thank you and happy holidays from all of us. I want to go back just for a minute or two to hear the um, the theme music from Strike Debt. Can I ask our board op to play that uh, for us? And let's hear that one more time. When there's so many of us can't afford a home. When there's so many of us who can't get a job. Man, I don't 
Egypt crumbs, I would rather starve. Strike that. Uh, you are not alone. The American dream, it wasn't ours to own. The American dream, it has requirements. Your very blood, no lie, check the fine print. Strike that. What's this place we live in? Where the men, women, and children are the logs to the fuel, the flames from the beginning, the cogs in the machine. We rage against the scene, entrapped in the routine of work, live off cat Grinding for the green and red, we lay our heads with dreams of reaching black. No chance for reaching back, for getting ahead, for giving a debt, forget about that. For raising the pay of the folks in the minimum wage, we about that. Rewards of an honest day, and a merit we was promised. And a chance to invest, work up a sweat, make a profit. Greedy men get off it, a prophet once confessed that deadly sin. Press to eat their heart out, but innocent to they end of 1%. On a quest to gain the globe and lose their souls. Dominate material world, imperial laws on cruise control. Have lost compassion. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Tune in next week to Full Circle to enjoy expert advice on winter gardening in the Bay Area. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host, Darlene Pagano, with guests from Strike Debt, Debbie Notkin, and J.P. Masser. Thanks to Laura E. on the board and our tech assist, Sharon. Thank you for in, um, joining us tonight on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next. Thank you.